0: Hi, Mike. Starting off with your early career, really. How did you ever get into the uh, entertainment business and music? And was it always a passion of yours?
1: Well, yeah. Um, I started. I had dancing lessons when I was uh, very young. Um, n- I was never a great dancer, but um, uh, Julie Andrews' mum and Julie Andrews' aunt, Auntie Barbara and Auntie Joan, uh, gave lessons in our house. So I was uh, tap dancing and singing uh, from a young age. Uh, yeah, uh, I mean, Julie Andrews had already become a big star and gone to the States. Uh, but Auntie Barbara played the piano, Auntie Joan did the dancing. And because dancing lessons were in our house, uh, I, I had to do them. So from the age of six or seven, I was on stage uh, singing. Uh, dancing and then doing concert parties and things like that. And then I played Lysandra in Midsummer Night's Dream when I was eight. <laughs> and, and I was so nervous because I forget my words. My mother came into the bathroom and she's watching me. She said, What are you doing? And I'm standing with my head in a bowl of freezing water. And I said, I'm trying to catch a cold because I can't remember my words, and I'm very nervous. <laughs> don't be ridiculous. As ridiculous as when she came in and caught me shaving my legs, and she said, "Why are you doing that? You're ten years old." I said, "I don't want to grow up." <laughs> and I proved her right. I never did. Uh, but yeah, so uh, I, I so I was on stage a lot, and I, and I did a lot of junior roles in um, in adult companies as well and a lot of Dodie Smith things I like Capture the Castle, Deer Octopus and things like that. So, um, yeah, I was always on stage and I think in some ways it, it gives you confidence of working with a team of people, uh, with working with adults, you learn from other people and you're part of a team. Uh, you're not an isolated person, an individual. So, um, and it teaches you stage presence, projection, of getting out there, projecting, talking, interacting with other people. So there were many, many lessons that I inadvertently learned. I just thought I was having a good time, but uh, I was learning. A bit like being at the BBC, you know, people say that must have been great fun, but latterly you realise that you were actually learning a lot from the older DJs, from, you know, the producers and things like that. So, uh, yeah, that that's really, I mean, my big love was was songwriting from a very early age again from i used to get on on the piano when auntie barbara finished i'd be picking out tunes and i felt it was really magical the way that that notes fell and words just just absolutely married I, when i was a very young kid i thought yeah I thought, that's a great tune but the words aren't very good and it's it's a bit like two people you know you can both be good-looking but you might not belong together and I thought those words are okay in the music but they don't they're not a marriage so I was very aware of that marriage of words and music that you could destroy a good tune with average words and vice versa Uh, so uh, which I've done many times Um, so yeah I started writing when I was was quite young and and writing my own songs Um, I got my first cover in 73 a guy called John Lucas Mm -hmm. who's Maltese who did a sort of a sort of soul version of this beautiful song. I thought, no, it's not how it's meant to be, but latterly, you're just delighted with you know, anyone that covers one of your songs, really. Exactly, and of course, you wrote the one for
0: uh, David Essex, didn't you, and the fan way.
1: Yeah, we, had a, we were in the charts for a couple of months with that, and it was a hit in Australia as well. And then, um, uh, yeah, he did a great job on that, David. It was very, very good. It's it's a delight. You know, there are a few things about writing a song. It's one, you have the idea, and you write it, and you're thrilled. Two, it's when somebody says, yes, I like it, I'll record it. And three, if it's a hit. So the third is a bonus. So, yeah, I mean, uh, and then I uh, wrote that More to Life for Cliff, which is a, mm-hmm. uh, a big hit here and in Ireland as well. And, I mean, it, it's great when people, but whose records you bought when you were a kid cover your songs. You're delighted. I mean, Cliff's done three of my songs. Uh, Colin Blunstone's done two of my songs. You know, people like, you know, Don McLean, Gene Pitney. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And, you know, when these people you cover your songs you think you're looking through the glass and you think I bought your records and you're singing my song yeah Uh, wonderful yeah I mean I've written for probably about 45 major artists so uh, but I love that it's great fun great fun
0: who was your um, idols as songwriters and, and even as artists in the charts
1: when you were growing up that uh, yeah, you looked up to, it's mainly songwriters. Yeah, I I was the one that looked at the names in parentheses under the singing. Oh. oh, it's them again. Who are they? Oh. I didn't know. I just saw the names. For example, Tepper and Bennett. You know, under the young ones, and I thought Tepper and Bennett. I don't know who they are, but uh, mm-hmm. they're good. And then I saw their name under uh, Traveling Light, and I thought, oh, they've written Traveling Light as well. <laughs> and then you see their name under uh, you see their name under under Elvis Angel, and you think. Oh, they wrote that too and you see all the songs that Tepper and Bennett have written and and then I saw they'd written um, what it, Danny Williams wonderful world of the young and I thought mm. it's them again you know mm-hmm. and uh, they wrote so many great songs and every time I saw something with their name I thought it's probably good because I'm t- taking them as a typical there were loads of songwriters I liked but and then years later I got to meet them I was writing one of my books which is 200 years of the songwriter in Britain and America and I spoke to Roy Bennett on the phone and I said I told him that story and I said I just looked for your names Uh, and I knew it would be a good song. If I saw your names I knew it would be a good song. Red Roses for a Blue Lady, Uh Going Back to the 50s, Naughty Lady Shady Lane I knew it would be a great song. So uh, D In Love they wrote for Cliff as well, about 12 songs for Cliff they wrote something like 50 songs for Elvis they were half the, <clears throat> uh, the, the Blues, Hawaii album, I think, some stuff on G.I. Blues. They were great. Phenomenal. Anyway, um, so I said, yeah, I mean, I always look for the songwriters. And then uh, Roy said to me, you know, Mike, he said, we never met your Cliff Richard. He said, we, we wrote for Elvis. We met Elvis. We wrote for Sinatra. We met Sinatra. We never met Cliff. And I said, okay. I said, well, look, here's the plan. And he said, yeah, okay, I like that. And then I was doing... Uh, a video with cliff for uh, we did it at bakewell uh, for november night a song of mine he did we're doing the video and we we're having something to eat one night before we went in sheffield the night before and cliff said you know he said sort of, i never met those guys that wrote all those hits for me tepper and bennett you know the young ones traveling light. i never ever got to meet. assuming that they died they've been riding together since 1939 <clears throat> so you assume they're gone and I said, oh, really, really? So when we, Cliff did his tennis thing at Birmingham, I flew Roy, Roy Bennett and his wife uh, in, Ruth, and we went up there, and Cliff had no idea. Those people milling around. did the <clears> tennis, <throat> end of the evening, Cliff does eight numbers. She's just about to go on stage. Cliff's very professional, you know, he knows what's happening and the other. So I walked on stage, she said, what are you doing? I said, don't worry. He said, what are you doing? I said, it's okay. <laughs> So I just said to the audience, you remember, you know, G.I. I Oh, yes. You know, do you remember ancient? Yes. Do you remember thinking about love? Oh, traveling light. Oh, the roar's getting bigger. The young ones. Yes. I said, Cliff never met these guys. And Cliff's sort of saying, what's your point (laughs) outside of his mouth? (laughs) And I said, I said, he thinks they've gone and they haven't. Roy Bennett, who wrote those, is here. And I thought Cliff was going to faint. Okay, and they hugged each other and sang the young ones together on brilliant. stage. Brilliant, absolutely brilliant. So, uh, yes, I, I was able to bring that together. Yeah. And that's just, you know, uh, an example of two songwriters. But, yeah, I always look for the songwriter.
0: I think it's perhaps you should front uh, the new blind date. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, your early career, you started in radio, uh, was it Reading?
1: 210, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, with Steve Wright. And um, how did that go? How did it you was find pretty, that enjoyable? It, it, we were employed by Neil French Blake. Um, Neil was a lovely man. He said, I want you on my radio station for three reasons, he said, in his best old Etonian voice. He said, he said, um, one, you're mildly eccentric, two, you're very English, and three, you're a bloody good opening bowler. And I <laughs> said, what's that going to do with it? He said, I'm starting a cricket team and you're playing for us. And I said, well, I, I play for Tim Rice's team. He said, you play for me now as well. I said, okay. <laughs> um... So, Steve and myself did a programme together, The Read&Write Show, because our names mm. work, Read&Write. But we never socialise, we still don't, we never have. But on air, we just, well, we just knew what the other one was going to do. Quite often on radio, they put two people together and say, oh, we'll put you and you. And it doesn't work, it's an arranged marriage. Mm. Steve and myself just somehow knew what the other one was going to do. And we'd never want to be the last one to score a point. If Steve came out with a great line, i go, and we'd go straight into a record, I, I wouldn't try and chop him if he'd come out yeah, with something sure. good or vice yeah. versa yeah. and uh, yeah it was great we we learned a lot he fired us once a week you know, boys are amateurs I'm going to fire you listen to the professionals <laughs> and we listened to professionals we thought well they're nice blokes but a bit old-fashioned so we were doing lots of new things he'd drive in and say what the hell are you doing sitting on the curb we said, well, we've got the engineers to run the wires out here. We're just seeing who's listening. If you're driving in a blue Mini. if you see they're listening to us. We couldn't believe it. And we'd have a transistor. You see, say, go on, you go and have a listen. Yes, we're really on the radio. And we'd listen to ourselves on the transistor because <laughs> we, we couldn't quite believe we were on there. I did a jingle that we ran on the Buddy Holly song, Love Is Strange. It went, read, read and write, read, read and write. And it took Steve the entire duration of our time there to realise I got four mentions to his two. Read, <laughs> read, and write, read. What he said, wait a minute. Read, read, and write, read, read, and write. Yeah. He said, not only am I at the end of the line, he said, you get two mentions before me it was in the days when people on radio said don't forget where you heard it first right here on you know all that kind of thing it's sure. a one-up shit but uh, but very funny so you, so obviously you didn't get the sack there you you you, no, you left got in sack once a week yeah something. but,
0: but <laughs> when you left you went on to, to do um, was it uh, Luxembourg R- Luxembourg, wasn't it uh,
1: yeah. 78 77 yeah uh-huh. um, I've been asked to do a tape and I was really busy because I was running a quiz station as well do, doing everything getting your teams right the questions you know, doing all I just didn't have time and Peter Powell was leaving I knew Peter um, from school days a lot of my pals were upping him with Peter so I knew him from then and and he said get a, get a tape in I've got time to make one and he kept saying to them, you should listen to Mike anyway I didn't get a tape in, um, and they called me up to the head office at Hartford Street and said, "Will you do a live interview?" So it was Ken Evans, Alan Keane, everybody sitting in there. An idiot here has only been on the radio for eighteen months. Hmm. I had to do a live interview, and Alan Key said, "Jolly good, Mike. Yes, you we'll, we'll let you. Uh, we'll let you know. We'll, we'll give you a call." He said, "We've got about two thousand tapes in." I thought, "Oh God, I'm never going to hear." Anyway, the following day I got a call, and they said, "You know, could you be on a plane next week?" So I got it out of the 2,000 people, some reason, and um, I, was, uh, I was on a plane and off to the Grand Duchy, walked into the studio to my first program, and oh, there's wow. Barry Aldis who I listened to under the bedclothes mm. as a kid, you think, mm. Barry Aldis, wow. He yeah. said, yeah, here's our new boy, Mike, Keller." Mike. Oh, He always knows me. Um, and then he got up and he said, well, good luck, and walked off. <laughs> um, I, had to, I was in the deep and nobody showed me how to work the desk.
0: And Was it been. not similar to the, to Reading?
1: No, it was, no, it was like oh. a flight desk of Concorde or something. It was oh, this, okay. this this great. You had to run from one end to the other almost. You, know. you didn't okay. use most of the buttons, but yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. no, no, totally dissimilar. Like going to a new school, you know, you get so used to your old school, the way everything is, and suddenly you're in a you're mm. a new boy. But it was yeah, it was interesting. You know, you you never think you be already in Luxembourg. So, yeah. And
0: how long did you do that for?
1: I got a call from Radio One the following October, October 7th. Oh, so a year? Yeah, 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 yeah. And I came over and had had the meeting, and then Dorian Davis, who was head of music, sent me to see Derek Chino, he was the controller, and Derek phoned my agent and said, does Mike want this job? And he said, yeah, I think so. He said, yeah, that's a rather dilettante approach to it. He said, does he have independent means? He said, no, I don't think so. He said, most people come in here crawling over broken glass to get it, he didn't seem that bothered, he said, no, that's, that's his way, that's how he deals with things, it's like, yeah, okay, and you'll just get on with it, but he will deliver. He said, ah, okay, yeah, oh, so I got the job. But you you have to remember that you're very, very lucky, that, you know, that, that there are a long queue of people, and you happen to be standing at the door when it opened. You know, Mm. you could have been second in line, you could have been third in line. It's like being a great goalkeeper when there are two just a little bit better than you that play for England and you never get the chance. Mm. You can be very good. I know a lot of people that are really, really good broadcasters who would have been great on Radio 1, but for some reason the opportunity didn't come up or it came up at the wrong time. You know, again, it's a bit like love. You might meet somebody that you, you actually fall in love with each other, but you're both married and yeah. the timing is hope, you think, oh my god, if the timing had been better, this would have been, sort of made my life, <laughs> uh, it's the same with that, you know, with some people, I could have been second in queue and go, spent my life saying, you know, I just miss being on Radio <laughs> <Go> One, so <laughs> yeah, 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 you have to be, like, but then again, you have to be able to do the job when you're in there, there are a lot of people that, that uh, came in and were heralded as the new this, that or the other, that didn't, um, that just didn't make it for some reason, so you have to be able to capitalize on it and do it once you're in there. And it wasn't, as Dorian Davis said to me, she, it's not just about playing records. She said, it's about everything else. She said, you'll find yourself, as I did, you know, at a dinner sitting next to Prince Charles. And you're going to have to confess. You're going to find yourself doing something at Buckingham Palace with the Queen, which is one of the first things I did. Yeah, she yeah. said, so you're going to be an ambassador uh, for the BBC. You know, the Diamond Jubilee, I, um, I read... At, uh, I had to walk down the aisle with Robert Runcie, the Archbishop of Canterbury, yeah, yeah. and there's the royal family there, and I had to read great chunks of the Bible and rows upon rows of famous BBC people. So it wasn't just about playing records; it was how you dealt with sure. situations and how much of an ambassador you could be for the BBC. Yeah, um, I mean, you, you started off in the, with the graveyard shift, as it were,
0: one of the programmes on, on there, but then you soon got the flagship programme, didn't you, the, the, the radio. Uh, breakfast show.
1: Yeah, although a lot of people still love the, the program, the first main program I did, which was the one before John Peel, and okay. people still say, oh, that, that was a favorite program of yours. And, and and again, you had to step up to the mark, because I could, the, the morning John Lennon died, uh, I got course saying, right, we want two hours of something tonight. It's like, two hours of something? Yeah. So, I had to put together a two-hour special for one of the world's greatest icons, you know, on the Hoop, yeah. really, yeah. and do it. Yeah. As I did a Capital Kenny Everett where Richard Park said, uh, I, I got in there, Richard Park said, right, I want two hours on Kenny or three hours where it was on Kenny. Said, okay, so down to the line, I've grabbing things, grabbing ideas and putting it together as you go. Uh, yeah. Those things are great. It's a great education, really. Sure, yeah.
0: So when you left Radio 1, you started to get into doing some TV stuff, didn't you?
1: Uh, well, we did TV, I, I did TV almost before Radio One because I did a national series. Yeah, a national series called Pop Quest, yep. which is like a pop quiz for that. kids. Um, that we had guests on. We did the pop quiz. And we had a guest in the middle. Uh, Brian May, one week. Jack Good, the TV mm. uh, producer pioneer. John Peel was where I first met John. Um, so we did that, and then when I started at Radio One, because I did Top of the Pops before I even did a Radio One program, bizarrely. Uh, so I did my first Top of the Pops, end of 78, and the last one, 2006, which is the very last one. Um, and then uh, Pop Quiz started, uh, so did Pop Quiz on Saturday night, and then Saturday Superstore on a Saturday morning. Uh, and again, with, with Superstore, the, the, Chris Bellinger, the editor came chasing at the car park after me and said, if we were to offer you this job, would you take it? And I said, yeah, he said, okay. We didn't know whether you were that keen or I said, No, no, I am. He said, Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. He said I said, It's just how I am. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. Yeah. So uh, and that was great because it was the longest live T V programme in the world, it's three and a quarter hours live. So it was like big breath, here we go. There was no going back, there's no stopping saying, Let's do that again or there's no hiding. You're in view, in vision. So and so's here, We've got ten minutes, go. okay, fine sit down you know and it's you've got 10 million people watching yeah so you've got to yeah. do it um, and there's certain situations like i had to deal with the Zebrugge situation which now will be rolling news mm. i mean it wouldn't be anywhere near children's tv no you know and i'd be chatting with adam ant and and they say okay thanks adam so you go from the levity and you spend about 30 seconds going down to so of get some gravitas back and you always say so we're now going back to Zybrugge, you know the scene is unfolding and then you come out of Zebrugger and Cliff Pinnick, the floor manager, will give you like 30 or 45 seconds to bring the level back up again You say, uh, well, returning there, more on that later, and you gradually, gradually, gradually bring it up and bring it up and bring it up, and, it, and Adam is still with us here. So, yeah, it was, um, again, that was an education. So yeah, very difficult. Those different things are now curve. thrown at news, but you, we had to deal with them.
0: I've got to ask you about the furore over relax, truth or myth. What's your take on it?
1: Uh, well, <laughs> yeah. I used to repeat the chart on a Wednesday morning, as simple as that really and Adrian and John was the only one in the studio, they're judging by the stories, you think there were a thousand people in there and uh, we I didn't have time to play them all, it was, it was always a squash to play them all anyway and the Frankie was on a 12 inch and Adrian said have you seen this picture on the back? I was talking with Trevor Horn about this a couple of years ago and he said do you know I didn't know they'd done all that, he said I wasn't really party to all that uh, or, or really the video um, and so I said, oh, I'll drop one, I'll drop that one. And Paul Morley, their manager, simply capitalized on it. You know, banned. well it wasn't me that banned it, because I was I was employed by the BBC. The BBC could have said, well we're gonna fire you then. But it was the BBC that banned it. And it was really the video that did it. The video was explicit in, in many ways, which I won't go into here, but um, my producer, Paul Williams came in, he said, oh my God, he said, my two young daughters, I found the rewinding, rewinding, is sort of simulated yeah. acts and yeah. these things, he said, Oh God we can't be and then the head of Radio 1 said no 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 we can't be and then Chris Bellinger at BBC said look you know we're, we're the face of children's television we can't be seen to be anywhere near this uh, and and what happened years later I was down in Cannes at the film festival and this guy leaned across the table and he said I think you and I have got something in common and I said what he said I was the director for the video for the Frankies he said and Paul Morley told me to be very very explicit that it was for, I think, the Oxford Roadshow, Show, or whatever it was, or whatever was going on at the time there. And uh, he said we were told to, you know, make it really over the top. And when we made it over the top, just that late night show, he then took it to children's TV and Top of the Pops, just a shock, uh, which he did. But anyway, I did I did the voiceover for their first album, and uh, we, were, you know, we, we had them on after that. So, I mean, they are some great records. I mean, Two Tribes. I prefer Two Tribes and Welcome to the Pleasure Dome anyway, To uh, mm. Relax, but relax is a great track. You know, people put it on when you walk in somewhere to see whether you say, "Oh, I can't possibly stay here with that on But uh, no, pleasure dome you and know, two tribes are all brilliant tracks, and uh, of course Trevor Horn was the mastermind behind them, yeah. Giving yeah. That sound so, yeah. But uh, yeah, it's a good song.
0: Uh, Mike, moving back up to up to date, I know you've got uh, your fingers in a lot of pies as regards. Uh, books, plaques and and, uh, mm. and writing songs and stuff. To Let us know about your up-to-date stuff and what you're involved in.
1: Um, I, I've just had my 40th book out, I think it is, which is 100 uh, Blue Plaques. Um, I'm chairman of the British Plaque Trust, so we, we put up. The latest one <coughs> we did was to Anthony Newley a couple yeah. of weeks ago. And then they did a big night at the Pheasantry, which I hosted, sang a couple of songs to a lot of West End singers there. Mary Wilson sang who uh, was great, so we had a really packed house evening, so he made a whole day of it. Uh, our next one, or one of we got two in July, one of those is Lonnie Donegan, yeah, for the 65th anniversary of Rock Island Line, recorded at Decca Studios in West Hampstead. So, we talked about this when we did a gig a while ago, uh, Lonnie Jr., Peter, uh, and myself, and he said, Yeah, let's do the plaque for the 65th. So, uh, everything is agreed, we're doing it. And uh, we we're going to do a special thing in the morning. And then Peter said, "Right," he said. Um, he said we booked the Cadogan Hall for the evening. He said you're hosting it. Okay. He said got Van Morrison, got Billy Bragg, got Joe Brown, got Chris Farlow, So the whole tribe of people. Yeah. And we thought, oh, this is going to be great. So I think it almost sold out already. So yeah. making a um, <clears throat> yeah, very involved in in blue plaques, so obviously some some non musical ones as well. And then I just signed a six book deal for six books on a thousand years of a London street. Uh, the first one, which I've just finished, which is out this year, is Denmark street, Tin Pan Alley, mm. home of all the songwriters, all the publishers, you know, David Bowie just lived in his camper van on the street. Now you get moved on within an hour, yeah. 10 minutes, but he lived, <laughs> he lived in his dormobile, was on the street for six months. So trying to get a deal yeah. as they all did. Paul Simon walked up and down the street for months, trying to get a deal with two songs. Homeward Bound and Sound of Silence. Yeah. Sorry son, not what's happening at the moment. <laughs> and then eventually yeah. went to April Music, and they said, yeah, okay, you know. Because yeah. they'd used one of his songs, so he went in there and they said, yeah, okay, we'll sign you. Um, so yeah, yeah. It's, it's an amazing street. I mean, the kinks started there, Donovan did all his early demos there, um, Black Sabbath did their first album there, the Stones made their first album there. I mean, it's it's an amazing street, going back to, you know, start really in the 10 hundreds. Um, and there was music around then and and even a song that was a number two in the late sixties was written there in the mid 1850s you know things like that oh happy day oh yeah yeah so Edwin Hawkins yeah yeah yeah. amazing um, amazing street I mean considering it's just 300 feet long if Mm. that uh, Mm. the things that have happened there you know Charlie Chaplin uh, turning up one day, Jimmy Phillips, uh, the publishers, he said to his son Peter Phillips, he said, oh Peter we've got special guests. this is 1953, a uh, special guest coming, he said, could you go downstairs and meet him? He said, yeah, who is he? He said, oh, you'll find out. And he got downstairs, Charlie Chaplin. Yeah. Walked upstairs, wrote the lyrics to smile, though my heart is breaking. Wonderful. <laughs> I mean, there were some great, great stories of the street. I mean, uh, Ed Kastner, who had President label and, uh, and and published, of course, all the uh, equal stuff, Eddie Grant, things like that, and the Kinks. Uh, he announced one day in the office that he got this new, he bought this new copyright for two hundred pounds. They said, "Are you mad? Two hundred pounds? You're crazy." He said, "But it doesn't sound like anything that's around at all. It's weird. It's not orchestral. It's not, you know, what is it?" He said, "Well, it's called Rock Around the Clock." Two hundred pounds is. It might break you. Yeah, right. I mean, it made him. I mean, owning the copyright for that. Yeah. And Wally Ridley down the road going, and they said, Wally, if you get this wrong, this song you brought in, you know, you're in for the high jump. But it's called Heartbreak Hotel. It's going to be big. Mm. You know, that was the flip of a coin there, people's ears. You know. Yeah. That was the key. You know, can you hear a hit or can't you hear a hit? And there were certain people that were great at it. Joe Meek. Great ears, could yes. spot yeah. Waterman, can spot a hit. Pete Waterman, not a songwriter, but could spot a hit. Mickey Most can spot a hit. Jonathan King, they're all people that could could spot commercial records, mm-hmm. commercial songs,
0: mm-hmm. which is a key thing. Yeah,
1: that's right. So many people can't. And they put out record after, and you think, it's okay, it's average, it's average, it's not great. But those people and others had ears and could hear a hit. A friend of mine, Steve Etherington, who plays in the Rebet. He's also the MD for all, all the Butlins camps. He does the Ibiza Orchestra, they go out there and he's a great musician, a really, really good musician, Steve. And he did a version of Owner of a Lonely Heart, which they had a bit of a tickle with out there, a bit of a hit in the States. And he came back, he said, they want something original, can you come down? I said, yeah, okay. So we were talking about ideas and I said, well, let's have a cup of tea and just chat for a while and see if anything comes up. And uh, he'd just come back from Ibiza. And he said, oh, he said, you know, the time thing there. I said, well, it's not much different here. He said, no, but he said, you know, the clubs open at 12 o'clock. I said, what, lunchtime? He said, no, no, night. They open at 12 or 1 and go on till 8 in the morning. I said, why don't they just open at 8 and go on till 2? He said, well, they don't. Everything is really late. Mm -hmm. So I said, so really out there nothing starts until midnight? He said, no. I said, that's it. That's the title. It starts at midnight, and it does um, uh, And then it rolled on. Wrote the song, I said, quick, get this down. Said, okay, yeah, yeah, we, we wrote it. Probably wrote the song in an hour, demoed it in an hour. And then about six weeks ago, they released it, and he came to me and said, it's number 15. I said, wow. And he said, it's 13 this week. I said, well, it won't make the top 10, but it's at least you know, top 30. Yep, yeah, yeah. Then the next week it was number <laughs> 5. And uh, the next week is number one, and sitting underneath it, Ariana Grande, Seven Rings, Janet Jackson. You think, okay, that'll do. <laughs> so, uh, we've just done the follow up, just just sort of write, just wrote some extra lines for that. Yeah, the other day, so we need eight more lines, okay, go. Okay. You know, but it's great. I mean, it's uh, always very exciting writing a song because you don't have any raw materials. You know, if you're a carpenter, and you're making this table, you're starting with wood and it's all mm-hmm. and stuff like that. You know, yeah. if you're growing flowers, you're starting with the seeds when you're writing a song you started with nothing I mean, absolutely nothing mm. uh, and it's got to come from somewhere from your you know the deep recesses of your imagination or uh, or sometimes something you've heard that gets twisted slightly yeah um that, not not plagiarism but something we're all influenced by something you know style sure. sound and, yeah uh, so yeah so um so that's good and then later on this year early next year we're putting great expectations back on the road and yeah. um I went through with the uh, ranger and MD the other day who worked on it when we first did it and uh, he said oh, I forgot what a great song I forgot what a great song that was he said so I'm feeling wonderful he said he said So we'll do when I come back from Spain we'll do act two he said but yeah it's a they're a wonderful set of songs and I said I've written another big one for it the producer didn't really want one he said but okay and I said that no, I've written a really big blockbuster I've been working I was so proud of it and he said, oh, well listen to it at the end, I played it to him. He said, I don't like it. I said, oh, he said, you're trying to be too clever. And of course, as a songwriter, it's like somebody criticizing your kid. If you've got a child mm. and somebody says, don't like your child, or it's an ugly baby, or your, your son's thick, you go, you, what? <laughs> you know, you get angry. It's like, you know, the mother bear is preparing to defend here. So you do, you do, Neil Sedaka once I said, what's your favourite song? And he said, Mike, they're all my little babies. He said, I send them into the world and they send me money home. They're all my babies. <laughs> and a lot of songwriters will say that. They're, they're your children. You, you you've created them, you've raised them, and you're proud of them. So when he said, I don't like it, I was, I went home a little bit grumpy. And on the journey back, by the time I got back, I thought, maybe I could write a better one. Mm. Uh, it's a bit like William, William Le Marshall, who was um, uh, great, great chum of Richard I. William Le Marshall, when he was six years old, King Stephen kidnapped him and put him in a catapult and threatened to smash him against the walls of Newbury Castle. And he said to his father, Unless uh, you capitulate, I've got your son in a catapult. This is King Stephen. I've got your son in a catapult and I'm going to smash him against the walls of the castle. And his William Le Marshall's father said, that's all right. I can have more sons. Go ahead. But he didn't do it. <laughs> but I, I thought, I was thinking William Le Marshal, Richard First King Stephen, while I got back home. And I thought, you know what? Fair I can have what? more sons. Yeah. It was exactly that thought. I can write a better one. So I went to the next two days. I wrote a bigger, more direct song that went down a storm. Fair so... You, you can't just get grumpy and lock yourself away and think, I'm right, I'm right, I'm right. You've got to stop and think, actually, maybe I'm not on this occasion. It's a good song, but it's not right for this.
0: Talking about songs, what, what is your favourite song of all time by someone
1: else? Uh, Survival by Yes, from their first album. Okay. It came out in 1969, so I think. Now, I didn't hear it until about 71. I, I missed it when it came out. It was critically acclaimed, but not a hit. Uh, with John Anderson on lead vocals. And uh, yeah, I, I loved it. I, I thought it was a great track. I still do. And I only allow myself to hear it once or twice a year because I never want to get fed up with it.
0: You got the LP, I take it. Oh,
1: yes. But yeah, it's, it's, it's great. And and, um, and I just love John Anderson's voice. I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. What a voice. And it was years later uh, when we were doing the second John Betjeman album. I had a song that I was going to give to a counter tenor because it's very high. I did the demo, because it, was, you know, it was a high head voice, even. I was going to give it to a countertenor and then I thought actually John Anderson's got that countertenor voice so I went to see Brian Adams not the singer the manager and I said you you know um, uh, John yeah I do yeah I'll give you his address so I sent the demo out and I heard back from him and he said I like it I'll do it next time I'm in England which he did and he (coughs) made a fabulous job of it and we had a, a party but two years later at, at Mike Bat's house. And I pulled up at the same time as Barry Mason. Of course Barry and Les Reed written some great songs, Delilah, mm. The Last Waltz, mm. you know, everybody knows Dave Clark Five, um, wonderful writers. And and Barry said, Oh, he said, I'm so envious. I'm so envious. He said, John Anderson's done one of your songs. He said, Ah, oh, so envious. I said, please well, done one of your songs. No, no, never done one of my songs. He said, You one of the first things you and Les wrote uh, it was a thing called "You Came Along" for the Warriors. He said, "Yeah, we wrote that." I said, "They're an Accrington band," and he said, "Yeah, I think you're right." Yes, i said. John Anderson was the lead singer. He said, "All these years, he said, you know, mm. he recorded one of my songs in '65, and I didn't know." Yeah, that's strange. Yeah. That?
0: pretty much, Mike. That's great for doing the interview. <laughs>